The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. This is God's word. We continue in our study through the Apostles' Creed, which points to the foundations of the Christian faith. This can just be seen as a way to understand what does a Christian believe? What are the foundations of, of the Christian faith? I've had good conversations with people over the years about how, how doctrine can be, at times, can feel overwhelming. It could feel like a, a hang-up or a barrier to people um, knowing God, enjoying Jesus. Uh, some might even say, can we just... Can we just live our lives and, and be good to one another? Can we just love Jesus? Why do we need to get hung up on, on doctrine and be divided over what the Bible says? And, and while this, I think, comes from a good place, it falls short of, of what, what is good for us. Imagine if we applied this to other areas of our life. If you're going into the hospital because of a serious life-threatening surgery, we'd likely want to know the credentials of the doctor or the surgeon that is caring for us. When picking schools for our children, uh, you wouldn't think it unreasonable for someone to want to get to know the teachers and the principal or the vision of the school. I mean, anytime you go to the grocery store and turn over a package to look at what the ingredients are in that food, you're taking your life seriously. You're putting your life in your own hands. You are, you're taking your life seriously, as you should. You should care about what happens. And when it comes to our lives, it would seem true that the time that we have for asking big questions is now. Whatever span of life God gives you relatively is short compared to eternity. So the time for asking questions, the time for, for seeking God, the time for asking those hard and big questions is, is now. Doing our important study and knowing specifically the credentials of the God who claims to be the cure for our spiritual disease and to be the source of all of our eternal happiness. And so we should ask, okay, what is that God like? What does he care about? What does he hate? What does he love? And so this series aims to do that. We go through the Apostles' Creed. We're asking the questions, what should a Christian 
believe and, and how should those beliefs impact our life? Not just looking for information, not trying to just transfer information to you so that you can know what the Bible says. We're looking to be transformed. We're looking to be changed. And our next line in the Apostles' Creed is, if you've been following along with us, doesn't point to a doctrine at all. It points to a person. It points to a name. Today we come to the phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And perhaps the most basic and oldest confession of the Christian faith is summed up in three words. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. I'm reminded of this every time I drive home and every time I leave home to go into town and I see that abandoned semi-truck that says, you know what I'm talking about if you've ever gone over the freeway? Christ is the answer. There's a white one with black letters. There's a black one with white letters. Christ is the answer. And I, and I see this and in, in many ways I'm, I'm comforted by it but that's not the first thing that comes to my mind when I see that. I say, that's great, but what's the question? That's great that Christ is the answer, but what is the question? I know their general intention in this, uh, but I almost chuckle as I think about it and as I drive and I see it every time. What question are people asking to which we can go to Christ for the answer? If he is the answer, what is the question? In four words or three words, if you're using Christ is Lord, is telling a story. It's trying to tell us a story, a story that answers questions. And without knowing what the questions, without knowing what questions we should be asking, the biblical doctrine can just seem like this episode, uh, this confusing episode of, of jeopardy without anyone getting the right, the right questions. Just a bunch of answers. Christ is the answer. Here are three questions that I want to ask for today as we walk through this passage in the Creed as it reveals to us the questions we should be asking and how Christ is the answer to them. Here's the first question that I want to talk about. What do you need from God? What do you need from God? The phrase, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ tells us what we need from God. The name Jesus Christ is used every day by millions of people as a curse word. But it is the answer to a question of what do we need from God. It is also the central issue that holds together this entire confession, the entire creed. It holds together all of Scripture's meaning and purpose. Without this name, the creed has no power, it has no purpose, it has no pleasure for us. There's nothing good for this creed to offer us without these words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Christ but Jesus Christ is only half a name. It's also half a title. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Um, and I don't mean to ridicule you if you thought that it was. It, maybe you thought it was. Jesus Christ was his name. Jesus is his name, and Christ is actually his title. It's his function. Um, it's almost confusing to refer to Jesus as Christ, Jesus Christ. It may be more reasonable to say Jesus the Christ. It's a name plus a function, a name plus a title. Christ literally means the anointed one. The anointed one, the Christ who was to come, was the one that was expected by God's people. He was the expected one that God would send, the Savior King, who would set up God's kingdom on earth, that would reign over all of creation, and he would be king. He would be the heir of all of God's authority throughout the world. The Christ 
was the one the Jewish people long expected that would come and save them. Christ is the Greek, the Greek word for the Hebrew concept of the Messiah. The one who would come to save us and to lead us in all truth and righteousness. And that is who the Christ is. It's his name plus a vocation. They go, you know, Bob the Builder or, you know, Tim the Toolman. You know, it's a title, it's a name plus a vocation. I love how J.I. Packer puts it. To call Jesus Christ was to claim for him a decisive place in history and a universal dominion that all men everywhere must acknowledge. To call him Christ is to say that everything is yours that you are king, that you are savior, that everything is under your feet. Everything is your servant. You serve no one. No one is accountable, or you are accountable to no one. And the goodness of Jesus' vocation or function as the Christ, the long-expected Christ, the one who has come to save us and to lead us, is, the, is only understood as we connect it to the things that we need. What do we need from God? What do we need from God? Here's one thing. We need him to instruct us. We need him to let us know who he is. Each of us needs God's instruction. In verse 1 in our passage, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by our fathers, by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. This is to say that we are, they were ignorant of God. We're ignorant of God unless he lets us know who he is, unless he reveals himself to us. It's impossible to know that we're deeply loved by God who has come to save us without knowing much about him or knowing even very little about him. When we confess Jesus is the Christ, we are being brought face to face with a God who wants us to know him. What, each, what you and I need from God is we need to know him. We need him to tell us who he is. God wants you to know him. He's not playing hide and seek with you. Would you think about that for a moment? To say that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the one who God has sent to us, is telling us something very important, that God wants you to know him. He's not trying to hide from you. He's not saying, well, you come to me. You do the work to find out who I am. He's revealing himself to you. The life, the work, the teaching of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every emotion that God has felt and every syllable that God has ever uttered. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the ex exact imprint of God's nature. He's the visible expression of the invisible God. What a wonderful thing. Everything that God has felt for us, everything that he has wanted to communicate to us is wrapped up in, the, in Jesus who has come to us. To, to want to know God, we must know Christ, and he has made himself known. So we need to know who God is, and he shows us who he is in Jesus the Christ. There's no other way to see God more, more completely. There is no other way to see God more perfectly than by looking at Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we see what God is like. We see who God is. And we ask, what is he doing? When we look at Jesus... We look at Jesus in the scriptures, we ask ourselves, well, what is he doing for us? Well, our passage in Hebrews shows us that he goes to the cross. He's going to the cross, showing us 
another thing that we need from God. Not only do we need God to reveal himself to us, but each of us needs to be reconciled to God. Verse 3 tells us that we need reconciliation. There's no Christianity without the cross. There's no Christianity if God just merely comes to us to show us who he is. He must go to the cross to reconcile us to God. If we have Jesus but no Christ, then we have no good news. Meaning that if we have a perfect man who has said some wonderful things, who has lived a wonderful life of example, and he has performed many wonderful miracles, that he did not come to die in our place, then we remain unaccepted. We remain unforgiven and unblessed by God. We remain orphans, cut off from the fatherly love of God. And so what do we need from Jesus who is the Christ, we need him to come to show us who God is and to bring us back to God. If we desire to know true things about Christianity, as the Apostles' Creed aims to do for us, we must know true things about Jesus. And he's the Christ. He is the God-man who has come to die in our place and to bring us to God. Just a good man who has come to live. Just a good man born of a virgin. Just a good man who did miracles that humans couldn't do is insufficient for us. It does not bring us to God. It does not reconcile us to God. The ultimate fulfillment of Christ, the the Messiah who was to come, was the one who would come to suffer for his people. And this is what the Jewish people longed to see. They were looking to see the Messiah was the God who was the servant king. He was the suffering servant. He was the one who would come and bring us to God at great expense to himself, even his very life. And so they looked for the Messiah. But not only do we need information and, and we need the reconciliation, we need, we need a guide. That's the next thing that, that Christ shows us. We need a guide. We need someone to lead us in the ways of God. We need someone to guide, protect, and strengthen us. That's how Jesus fulfills his role as the Christ. He makes known the glory of God to us. He suffers in our place. He earns for us God's full blessing. And then he upholds and strengthens and protects us. He walks with us. He guides us. Hebrews says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high from where our prayers are received, from uh, our prayers are received by Jesus, He hears us, he listens to us, he intercedes for us. He leads our hearts, he sends the Holy Spirit to convict us, to convince us, to guide us, to challenge us. That's all Jesus' authority in doing. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, not just a name, but a confession. A confession of our dependency on God for all of our needs. When we say Jesus Christ, we should think, God, I need you. I need from you all of these things. And being Christ, you give me all these things and what you have done for me. Here's another question that the creed asks. Not only does it ask, what do we need, but how do we need to experience God? How how should we experience God and have this relationship with God? Jesus the Christ speaks of his function in the world and in our lives. But Jesus, the Son, speaks of something much different. It speaks not of his function, but his relationship to his Father. Let's reflect on this. When you hear a young man introduced as my only son, 
this father is not wanting to express to you their struggle and desire to have more children, but rather saying, this is my only son. It is, a, it is a, an expression of sincere affection and love, and he is the f- apple of the father's eye. The words reveal a deep and abiding affection for that child. When the creed says, Jesus Christ, his only son, what is it doing? Why is it telling us this detail? When the creed is doing this, it's doing the same thing that a father would do in introducing my only son. Whenever we see God the Father talking about Jesus, we see this beautiful affection. We see this outpouring of love. We see that the curtain has been pulled back of the kind of relationship that God has as a father to his son. He says, look at my son. This is my beloved son. No one is like him. No one has, his, has the place in my, in my eye like my son. The Father's voice from heaven booms down at Jesus' baptism and says, look at my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to what he says. Follow him. Give your life to him. I love him so much. Who is like him? In our passage, God is saying, no one is like him, not even the angels. Not even the angels. No one is, no one, God has said, to no one have I uttered the words, you are my son, and I am your father. To no one else have I said, I will be to you a father, and you will be to me a son. And then our passage in Hebrew says, even the angels worship him. It is as if God is saying, would you guys come around and see my son, and look at what he is doing, and how proud of I, I am of him, and would you, would you worship him, and praise him, and give your life to him? Do you see that kind of relationship that God the Father has with his son? Just a, a, an, an outpouring of unhindered affection and love. There are a lot of things we need to know about God. There are a lot of things that we should know about God. But knowing God deeply, knowing Him truly, knowing Him deeply, happens when the truth about God that we have learned a lot about is not just information in, in, in that we store in our heads, but it is a, the power that transforms everything in our life. Everything. God the Father has a Son. Jesus Christ, whom He loves with all of His supreme love that the God of the universe is capable of having. And what good is it if you know that information in your head, but it does not make you feel the supreme affection and love of God for you? What good is it in knowing that God has a son that he loves if you are not transformed by the fact that because of Jesus' love for you, that affection is yours also? And then that affection and love would change every decision you make. Every affection you have, every ounce of compassion you're called to, it would change your very life. What point is it that you believe that God has a son if that same love is not yours? It's not good news. It's pointless. It's, it's useless information. 
Even in this passage, we see the complexity of this. We see the mystery of this, of this love. We see the mystery in the triune God. The God who is one, yet three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here, God is one. And while being one, the God the Father speaks to God the Son. Jesus was not just the God-inspired man, nor was he just a superhuman or a super angel. Jesus was and is God and even called God by God. This is strange, isn't it? Do you see that pastor or that, that passage? He says, oh man, therefore God, your God, has anointed you God over all things. What is happening here? They're talking to themselves. What is it? We see this complexity. And I just, Jesus remains God's son while remaining fully God. And here's the good news as your mind spins around that. Here's the good news. You don't need to understand how this works in order to understand what Jesus has done or who he is for you. Understand it or not, we are told that the eternal God the Son became a man, and this is mind-blowing to us. And never ceasing to be God himself, he became a man. And here's something that God points us to, something that God is showing us about himself, that he has a son and that he loves him. And he's given his son everything. There is no one more satisfying to the heart of God than his son. No one. No one pleases God the Father like his son, Jesus. He's so thankful. He's so, he is so wrapped up in this joy and affection, and communion that he has with his son. And if this dearest love, and it is in this dearest love that Jesus has come to bring to others, the dearest love that Jesus shares with his father, he comes to bring to others. Do you believe this is possible for you? That no one can please the father like the son. But he has come to bring us that status. He's come to bring us that position. He's come to bring us that love that he has with the Father. He's come to bring to us. Isn't that amazing? Do you believe that for you? When we say Jesus Christ, his only son, we should see God's outpouring of love and affection for us. Because of what Jesus, the Christ, has accomplished. And he has come as the Christ, the promised Savior, ruler, and king over all of creation. Why on earth, if, you, if God is so pleased with his son, and he has given you that love, why on earth would you be mad at anyone who ever offends you? Knowing that you have that position with God. You have that affection and love from God. That he is so wrapped up in love for you that you, could, that you have to feel that you have to gain something from somebody else. Why on earth would you be worried about anything? Why would you be stressed about anything when God is capable of such love and that he has given it to you? His only son, given for you. You must be very special. To God. My only son, I'm giving him to you. You must be very special to God. This information changes how we live. 
Not just that he came to the earth and he died for our sins and he rose and now he's in heaven and he's telling us what to do. He's God's only son and he gave him to us. There's one more question I think we should ask from this. What do you expect God to do for you? What do you expect him to do for you? I'm going to ask you a question that I think will change and should change and redirect your entire lives. It's, it's actually that question. What do you expect God to do for you? What are you waiting for him to do? What are you waiting for God to do in your life that you feel is undone? How do you expect your life to go if you follow Jesus? When you start your day, when you finish your day, what prayers are left unanswered that you're saying, yes, God, I want you to do that for me? Where have you been? Why won't you do this? Why are you leaving all this work undone? What is that for you in your heart, in your mind? What do you expect God to do? If Jesus is supreme, if he is the Christ, God's only son, our Lord, and if he is most supreme in all the world, more superior to anything and everyone, then we need to grasp this very important concept. God's most glorious work in your life will not be how he makes your life shine, but how he convinces you that the affection that he has for his son is yours. Completely and fully, in full measure of God's capable love. That is the, the most glorious work that God will do in your life. To convince you that you belong to God and his affection is yours. And his work is complete. And there is nothing that we are longing for God to do in us that has not yet been done. Sure, we are longing for the fulfillment of his promises to be complete. There is much that, in, in, in a sense, that has been not done or completed. We're looking forward to temptation of sin to be gone. We're looking forward for disease. We're looking forward to our bodies not breaking. We're looking forward to evil and wickedness being rid from the world. We're looking forward to not crying anymore. But God has accomplished these things in Jesus and what he has done. He has accomplished our security for everything that he has ever promised, finds their yes in Jesus. All of it is ours. God's most glorious work in you will not be in him making you more obedient. It will not be in him helping you to be smarter. It will not be in him making you good. It will be in him making you, enabling you, empowering you to grasp that his perfect love for his son Jesus is yours. That's what he wants for you. That's his agenda. His agenda for your life is to convince your heart and to convince your mind that you belong to him just as much as his son, my only son, is his. If knowing God's affection and love for you is in any way secondary to anything else in your life, then your aim is off. Do you hear me? Can I say that again? If the God's affection and love for you is in any way a secondary goal to anything in life, then your aim is off. You're focused on the wrong things. You're off track, off course, whatever you want to call it. That's when this, this creed says, Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. 
that he is our aim. His, his love for us, his affection, his work f- accomplished for us is the most superior thing in my life. Knowing that, enjoying that, living out of an overflow of that reality is second to nothing in my life. That's what it means that he is Lord of our life. The Bible is not just a book of facts, yet it has a lot of facts in it. It is a truth-telling book. It's not just a book of morality, yet it discusses morality at a great, in a great way. Nor is it a book of fairy tales. It's a book about reality. It's a book about God and His claim on the universe. It's a book about God's supreme and cosmic agenda. And what is His agenda? His agenda is that you and I might share in His love by being transformed more and more into the person of Jesus, His only Son. That's His agenda. That's His hope for you. That's His desire for you. And that is His promise that He will complete. What is the promise that God has has given to us says it so much throughout the Bible that I'll complete the work I started. Well, what work did you start? To give you the life of my son, to give you the love of my son, and I will not rest until it's complete. That's his work. That's his agenda. The confession is not simply that Jesus is Lord and in control, but that Jesus is our Lord. I love how the confession doesn't just say Jesus the Lord or Jesus a Lord, but Jesus our Lord. The same love of God that is meant to invade our personal affections as we, re- as we reflect on God's love and outpouring of love for us is meant to also invade our personal will and our personal lives and our personal priorities. We are not meant to just look at Jesus and say, how you have loved me so much. We are also to let him invade our life and our decisions and say, you are Lord of my my will, not just my affections. You do not tell me that I am accepted and loved. You also tell me how it is I should follow you. That's what this means. What can it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is our Lord? It means that Jesus is not one more person in your life among many qualified people in your life pointing you to God or pointing you for how to live. He is not one of many qualified voices. He is the glorious God to whom everything in all of creation points and has its meaning. If something in your life or in creation does not point to Jesus, it is wrong. That's what it means. If it is not motivated by a love for God and glory to Jesus, if it is not done through a means of obedience to Jesus, and if it is not towards the goal of God's pleasure and joy, it is wrong. That's what it means that he is Lord. It means that there is absolutely nothing more significant in your life. There is no opinion that matters more than his. How many of you have the same perspective that you had 20 years ago, 10 years ago, a year ago, 9 a.m.? How many of you have changed in what you believe to be true about life? 
And this passage shows us that he is Lord who does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We recently have come out of this stage in our family, of the baby stage, which is a glorious thing to come out of. And the American P, we remember so much. We've forgotten a lot too. But we remember the American Pediatric Association recommends how newborns are to sleep at night. And there is a consensus of the brightest minds in the world of child experts that they are to sleep on their back. And when you are having children, likely parents of children who are having children, your children probably had to sleep on their stomachs. And there was even a time when they made these wedges that you put under their head so that they could sleep on their sides. And when my children are having children, they'll probably be suspended from their ankles to sleep at night. Uh, that's the safest way. You know, you don't want, you want it to flow downward and hang them from their ankles. Like, what are we doing? And when we ask God, what is your heart on this topic? What is your opinion on this matter? What is true about this thing? His answer will be the same today and a hundred years from now as it was thousands of years before. The same. Because the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Things change. Culture changes. But our God does not change. And in a world that is so eager to offer countless voices and perspectives on what we should believe, Christ presents his word and his wisdom as the most relevant and true thing that we can encounter any given day. It is overwhelming with authority and implications for politics and parenting and marriage and singleness and money and what you do on your day off and how you dress and even how you die well. Jesus, our Lord, has implications on every moment and every topic and every area of society. That's what it means. At the heart of all that matters in life is not a set of ideas or priorities or principles. At the heart of the matter of God's word and this creed is not that we would believe certain things, but that we would have a relationship with a person. It's a relationship with Jesus that directs our affections and directs our lives. Hebrews 1 tells us what is meant to shape our whole existence. It's that Jesus is Lord and we belong to him. What an amazing thing. What if that was the thing that directed all of your feelings and all of your actions? Jesus is Lord and you belong to him. That the love of God is yours without, without any reservation. The, this line in the creed is meant to shape our whole existence, is that Jesus is Lord and we belong to him. When we say the phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, is without a doubt the most counter-cultural and counter-intuitive line in the entire creed. You will not find this creed in the, you know, the gospel according to America. It's so countercultural. Why are you doing that? Because I belong to somebody else and he tells me how to live and I love him and I'm going to do that. Against my will, I'm going to do what he wants me to do. Why would you do that? Why would you do anything like that? Why would you say that? We live in a world where we're encouraged to find comfort in our possessions, in our power, in our pride, in our positions. But God shows us that we are to find our comfort, that we do not belong to ourselves. 
but we belong to God and his love for us. And that's a good thing. I want to finish with this as we reflect on this wonderful truth that we belong to God. We are not our own. There's a 16th century catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a devotional of sorts. It's a curriculum created in the 16th century meant to instruct us in in what we are to believe through question and answer. They ask a question and an answer is given. It's become one of the most widely circulated books in the world. I think in the top five books in the world, the Heidelberg Catechism, just behind the Bible and a few others. And much of its content and commentary is on the Apostles' Creed. And the first question in the book is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Isn't that beautiful? Christ is the answer, but what is the question? The question, it's all the questions you have. How can we face disappointment in life? How can we face judgment without fear? How can we fully find peace in this life and in the next How do we do anything that we want to do? What hopes and dreams should we have? What do I do with my fears? What do I do when I succeed? What do I do when I fail? Christ is the answer. He is Lord. He is Lord. Therefore, let's not make our plans or set goals in our life based on what is expedient for us, what is good or comfortable for us primarily according to our flesh. But what he has called us to do. We are not our own. We are his. Instead, let us live for him. We strive towards him as our only goal, to know and enjoy the riches of the blessings of God in Christ. That's why you were created. Let's pray.